here we are in the middle of the series. Uh, this is uh, six, week six, and um, we've arrived at Joseph. Last week we were talking about Jacob, and we looked at how Jacob, you know, was moving about and doing stuff, and we won't really review Jacob. If you want to review, last week's, according to some people, the best yet. So I don't rate these. Uh, other people rate these. Um, <clears throat> anyway, so this is kind of a, an interesting story, and I cut it off at a certain spot with a really good reason. We're not actually going to cover Joseph going down to Egypt, although we could. But I, I think there's something here that... Um, is a little bit more helpful for us. In this series, we've been looking at some kind of major themes in the Old Covenant that are a little bit not ignored, but just don't get a lot of attention, such as God being the bridegroom. And um, we looked at how John the Baptist said Jesus was the bridegroom and, and, and how Jesus declared himself to be the bridegroom by what he did and what he said. And, and so we, we looked at, we've been looking at how the Old Covenant and the New Covenant scriptures or the Old Testament and the New Testament scriptures, how they kind of weave back and forth. So we're going to highlight this morning three main uh, ideas that were the three big ideas that we're talking about today. First one is the importance of the Old Testament. The second is dreams and uh, symbols or symbolic language, what the Bible uses. And then the major theme that we're looking at today is judgment. And um, you probably haven't heard that many uh, sermons on judgment. It's not very popular to tell people they're going to be judged. And so um, I'm not telling you you're going to be judged. I'm showing you that Jesus tells some people that they're going to be judged. And we're going to see why that's important to see a true biblical Jesus. If you have a wrong opinion of Jesus, it will really distort and, and mess up your Christian walk. If you see Jesus as the airbrushed man from the many DVDs and movies that have been released where they've got him, you know, light glowing on him and he's just walking around in this kind of like semi-transcendent state uh, where he, it looks like he's just been meditating in a, you know, in a yogi party uh, <laughs> That's not the Jesus of the New Testament. In fact, the Jesus of the New Testament does some extremely difficult things to our Western ears. And we're going to look at that this morning. So I'm, I'm trusting that if you guys were able to receive the word about Jesus being the bridegroom, you're okay with seeing Jesus as the judge. And uh, then in the next few weeks, we'll be looking at Jesus as king as we once we get through Moses and Caleb and Joshua and all of that stuff. So... We're looking at the three big big points of Jesus, bridegroom, king, and judge. And so with that in mind, um, I wanted to say one thing about the importance of what we're doing in this series in training you in how to achieve a biblical worldview or how to build a biblical wor worldview for yourself. It's my opinion that seeing and treasuring God's glory and his promises in the gospel and the scriptures as a whole are the way by which we fight sin and temptation. That other than God's word, we are left very powerless against the claims and promises of what the Bible calls the mystery of iniquity. That is, we're somehow drawn to sin and somehow sin looks attractive. If, if I asked you if anyone sins out of duty, you probably, no one would say yes. You, you sin because you want to sin and you want to sin because you are deceived about the temptation. And the Bible 
opens your eyes. Jesus said, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. So you, you come to a correct understanding of the truth. Your eyes are opened about whatever that particular thing is. And then you're able to set up a value system in your heart and in your soul that allows you to choose Jesus over whatever. The devil, drugs, pornography, sexual immorality, uh, lying, envy, greed, whatever, whatever your thing is, if you, if you do not achieve a biblical worldview of that issue, you won't be able to conquer it except by the flesh and conquering it by the flesh is no conquering at all. So just merely restraining yourself from indulging in whatever sin you like is, uh, that doesn't actually mean you've conquered it. It just means you haven't acted out yet. And so it's my opinion that we have to read the Bible and understand what God says about particular things. And with that in mind, we will uh, be able to fortify ourselves against the schemes and the wiles of the enemy. But in doing that, in setting up information, uh, setting up a value system in your life where you have a set of core values, a set of biblically informed opinions about how to conduct yourself uh, on this earth, while you're doing that, if you don't see God's glory in the scriptures, you won't be attracted to come back to the scriptures time and time again. And so what I, I hope is happening in this series is that you are being able to see that there's a lot more than meets the eyes when you're reading the Bible. Um, last week, we looked at some pretty um, involved connections between what John the Baptist was saying about uh, a situation and how it was all weaving together. And so in, in the midst of the bridegroom message, John the Baptist is extremely important, but he was talking in the Gospels and it, we were connecting it to something in Genesis. And if I remember correctly, most of you were pretty well convinced that we were talking about, you know, the truth. So anyway, this, this morning I would claim that you cannot understand either the Old Testament or the New Testament by themselves unless you understand the other. And so as you're learning the New Testament, many Christians, it's okay to spend a year, maybe, maybe even just six months, spending some time reading the New Testament as a new believer because it's, it's a little easier to understand. You can get through it without picking up all of the little tiny things, and that's important. You need to get, you know, get some scripture read, but you won't fully understand the New Testament without the Old Testament, and I hope to make that case closed by the end of today. Um, so David is a man after God's own heart. We all, we all know that David was the most righteous king maybe in, uh, in all of Israel's history. He extended the land boundaries second only to what Solomon did a few years after his reign, and David set up the temple, and he did all of these wonderful things for God. He conquered armies. He conquered the Philistines. He acted righteously when he was being persecuted by Saul. And the Bible records David as being a man after God's own heart. Well, David was just a shepherd's boy. And there's no particular reason why David, among all of his brothers, should have become a man after God's own heart. But David actually lets us in on the secret to why that happened in Psalm 119. If you notice, this is probably the most random selection of verses that I've ever done, but it, I did it for a reason. We're not going to look at all of them, but verse 9 is important. How can a young man keep his way pure by keeping it according to, your, to his word? So he's backing up what I'm saying. You got you to read the scripture to not sin. Um, 11 is the 
the key verse that I think wins my argument is uh, your word I have treasured in my heart. To what end have I done that? I've done it so that I might not sin against you. And then verse 18, if you, if you go to the word to treasure it in your heart, if you don't have a value for the word of God, you won't treasure it. Treasuring is a verb. I treasure my treasure. I treasure my car. I treasure my money, my guitar, uh, my friends. I, treasure, I value those things, and I don't want to see them destroyed. And so I spend time with them. I make sure they're not damaged. If I'm treasuring the word of God, that means I have to have value for the word of God. And so in verse 18, David is praying and he says, open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law. That is, David's saying, I want to be fascinated when I come to the scripture and see the way that God has worked out his testimonies throughout his people. And so that's what we're looking at this morning. We're going to see hopefully some some pretty beautiful things. So with that in mind, um, I don't have time to develop all of these things, but these are just some symbols and you can take it from me. We're going to make one or two of them concrete. The uh, first symbol in this dream that I want to talk about is Joseph saw some some uh, sheaves. And um, a sheave is just a bundle of wheat. Um, it's kind of like on, what is it, on dollar bills, I think they have sheaves. Uh, the, the, the little eagle, he's clutching some wheat and then some arrows. Anyway, um, that's a sheave uh, or a sheaf. Um, I, I don't think you should say it, sheaf, but someone told me once that I should say sheave or sheaf. Um, a sheaf or a horn is an Old Testament symbol that talks about authority. That is, in the Old Testament, they have this idea called the horn. And phrases are the horn of Jesse or the root of Jesse. And that doesn't actually mean these little guys pointing out of your head. Um, it, it's a biblical symbol that, that relates to the person's head, but it doesn't. it's not actual horns. It's not like the devils with his little horns. Anyway, so that just means authority or, or position or rulership. Um, the sun, the moon, the stars, and the temple being the threshing floor. So, so the sun and the moon and the stars, we're going to see this morning how the Bible talks about those being rulers, that is rulers that God has set up. And then uh, most importantly, we're going to see how the temple equals the threshing floor and how that relates to who Jesus is. And um, I, I, probably have a good opinion or a good feeling one or two people know where we're going. So other than that, um, just bear with me. I know I'm, I'm setting up some dominoes and then hopefully I'm going to knock them over. So anyway, getting into this story with all that said, I think we're ready to begin into this story. So there's some types in Genesis. Um, Genesis 37 is the foreshadowing of the life ministry and pronouncement of judgment that Jesus does in the gospel of Matthew. And Jacob in this story is at one time or another in the, in the story, he, he takes the role of the father. And we're going to see how he does that. Joseph in this account takes the role of Jesus or foreshadows the role of Jesus. And then finally, his brothers are like the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So right at the start in verse 2, we see that there's some problems. Joseph is already hated by his brothers he, it says that Joseph went out to pasture the flock with his brothers, and he comes back to his father and gives them a bad report. In like manner, John the Baptist and Jesus both had extreme 
negative pronouncements against the Pharisees concerning their, uh, their religious spirit and their lack of actual mercy and grace and love in their heart, in, their key, in the keeping of their religion. In Matthew 3, 7 through 9, we see John the Baptist takes, he's here baptizing in the Jordan, and he says, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? So he, these Pharisees, these Sadducees are coming to John to be baptized because the Pharisees and Sadducees see that the people of Israel are going out to John in the wilderness and they want to be identified as the ones who are on the cusp of the spiritual movement in the day. So picking up again, verse seven, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with your repentance and do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. Picking up in verse 10, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals, for he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into the barn. So a threshing floor is just this place where you take wheat and you beat it out so that you can get the wheat off of the stalk. And um, we don't do that anymore. We have these little combines that roll through the field and um, they turn the wheat. So perhaps many of you have seen them when you're driving down the highway, they, they spill dust all over the highway. That's, that's what threshing is. It's the beating out of wheat and it creates a lot of dust, a lot of dirt that flies everywhere. But a threshing floor is the place that, that you do it. The reason you need a threshing floor is because if you don't have a, a place to catch the wheat, it'll just blow away in the wind. And you'll, you know, as you're, as you're trying to shake off the good part of the wheat to make bread or whatever, you're going to lose it all if you don't have this little room set up to, uh, to catch it. So that's what a threshing floor is, in case you didn't know. So here, John the Baptist is saying that Jesus, the one who comes to baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire, he is going to come and thoroughly clear his threshing floor. Now that sounds kind of ridiculous. Jesus with a piece of wood beating out some wheat. Um, I thought he was a carpenter. I don't get it. Um, bear with me. Genesis 37.3. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all of his sons, and he made him a very colored tunic. Oh, thanks. Sorry. This speaks of Joseph being favored by his father. This, this is a regal thing that he puts on. When you go, even in our culture today, when you go to an event, uh, like if you were going to go to the Emmys or something like that, um, you would wear nice clothing. And you do that to set yourself apart from others. And so Joseph here is given a coat of honor by his father. In the same way, Matthew 3, 16 through 17 records the pr pronouncement of God the Father over Jesus the Son when he was baptized. It says, after being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water and behold, the heavens were open and he saw the spirit of God descending as a dove 
and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. That coat that Joseph is wearing is partly honor, but it's also authority. Joseph is wearing that coat and people know that it's his father's coat, whether it was by the patterns that they used uh, or whether it was just in knowing who Joseph was and hearing about his father. They knew that Joseph was a special person. In like manner, Jesus is baptized in Matthew 3 here, and this is just a few verses after the Pharisees have just come to John the Baptist. And so God the Father declares over Jesus Christ that he is the one who is favored in the midst of the Pharisees and Sadducees hearing this. Joseph has a dream, and in this dream, it says that these sheaves, these little bundles of wheat, are going to bow down to him. And the Bible assumes that dreams come from God, um, at least some of them, not every dream. I don't believe you should uh, eat a bunch of pizza, then go take a nap, and then you know try to divine some sort of prophecy for your life. Uh, please don't share any prophecies, that, any dreams that you get with me that came from that. I just don't want to know them. But uh, the Bible assumes that God gives dreams, and those dreams are prophetic in nature from time to time. And so in the scripture, almost one-fourth of all of the events that take place are either set up or lead to uh, a significant dream. We saw this already with Abraham. We're seeing this with Joseph. It's going to show up with Daniel and Ezekiel. I don't know if we're going to get to Daniel. It's a long way away. Um, we're still in Genesis. Joseph, Jesus's father, and Mary both have dreams that are significant that lead to the saving of Jesus's life. And then Paul and Cornelius and so forth. And there's every reason to believe that, that dreams have continued all since then. In Genesis 37, 8, his brother's they totally get it. It says, then his brothers said to him, that is to Joseph, are you actually going to reign over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. So this is what the dream plainly means. Joseph is going to reign over his brothers. He was the youngest among them. And because he was the youngest among them, they were already established in the managing of their father's assets. And they were the shepherds of his father's sheep. And so they are shepherding these sheep and, and Joseph is finding himself in a place where he's contending with his brothers. In the same way, Jesus is going to rule over the Pharisees. That is, their religious system is about to be outplaced and things are going to pick up following the new way that Jesus is establishing. In Matthew 12, we see a little bit of this beginning to be fulfilled. Departing from there, he, being Jesus, went into their synagogue, and a man was there whose hand was withered. And they questioned Jesus, asking, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him? And he said to them, what man is there among you who has a sheep, and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will he not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable then is a man for, than a sheep? So then it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and it was restored to normal like the others or like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against them as to how they might destroy him. So Jesus here has just done something on the Sabbath. The tradition of the Pharisees, that is the way that they claimed authority in 
the old old religious system of Judaism at that day, which had gone severely astray from what Moses had set up. The tradition was for them to build on top of God's law and add to it over time. And their interpretation of the law was what gave them their religious zeal. That is, they weren't concerned with doing acts of mercy or acts of justice. They were concerned with, are we keeping the law correctly? They were coming to question Jesus in this instance about Jesus's uh, ability. And he, he just then, in, in the few verses before this in Matthew 12, he had just done some deliverance. That is, demons were cast out. And then, then right here, it says that uh, they, they asked him, you know, he basically asked them a question. Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath? And then he answers it. He says, of course. That's what God created the Sabbath for. And so Jesus here is claiming lordship over the Sabbath. That is, Jesus is saying, I am Lord of the Sabbath. I was the one who set up the Sabbath to be a restoration for, or a time of recreation. That is literally recreation, healing and restoring things and putting them into place. And so here, when the Pharisees have their religious system of, we don't do anything on the Sabbath, he, he confronts them and displays their hypocrisy because they're accusing him of trying to do work on the Sabbath, yet he makes it plain that even they pick up animals out of pits. And so how much more a man? The hypocrisy of the Pharisees is highlighted here, and it's going to become clearer and clearer as we continue. So where did he do this? He did this in their synagogue. And that is extremely important, as we're going to see in a few minutes. But Jesus' healing on the Sabbath, that is the Pharisees, their sheaves are, are beginning to bow towards Jesus' sheaf. That is, the authority that the Pharisees had or thought they were claiming is now being shown to be, it's, it's going to be coming down. A chapter earlier, Matthew 11, 9 through 11, Jesus describes who John the Baptist is. And I think it's, we've all seen in, in, in that, myself included, how much more important John the Baptist was than, than I even had thought. Um, we saw that really heavily in the bridegroom uh, teaching that we did a few weeks ago. Jesus describes who John the Baptist is in Matthew 11, 9 through 11. He says, but what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and one who is more than a prophet. This is the one whom it is written, behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So Jesus just said that John the Baptist was the greatest prophet. And at least if you grew up in Sunday school, you don't really think John the Baptist is a prophet. You think he's a guy who dunks people in water. And um, he, does, he does that, but he does more than that. And he does something very, very important. When we looked in Matthew 3.12, what was the thing that John the Baptist prophesied about Jesus? He said, he will come and baptize you in the Holy Spirit. And then the main two things were, he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor and he will gather his wheat into the barn. What? I, we're, we're talking about Pharisees, threshing? I don't, anyway. So this is fulfilled in Matthew 21, 12 through 16. Matthew 21, and Jesus entered the temple 
and drove out those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. Boy, that sounds kind of like Joseph's brothers when they sold him to the slave traders and the animal traders. In verse 13, and he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it into a robber's den. Verse 14, and the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done and the children who were shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they became indignant and said to him, do you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have prepared praise for yourself. Jesus was claiming deity and equality with the father in that statement. He's saying to the Pharisees who are saying to him, are you hearing what these people, these children are saying? The Pharisees first calling the masses children, which is, is probably not the tender use of the word. He's, they're probably accusing them of being infantile. He then goes on to, uh, to say that uh, they're, they're calling him the son of David. And they and he clearly understood that that is a claim to being the king of Israel. And Jesus in the next sentence says, yes, I'm the king of Israel. Have you never heard that I'm also God? He says, you have ordained praise for yourself. That verse is a prophecy about Yahweh. And Jesus is saying, I'm getting praise. And then he uses a verse that's talking about Yahweh to claim, and claims it as, as himself. I mean, that's amazing. But it's not as amazing as what is about to happen. So I just said, based on that, that when Jesus is clearing the temple, that he is actually clearing the threshing floor. And by extension, when he's healing and delivering people, he's bringing wheat into his barn because Jesus has to fulfill what John the Baptist had prophesied. And those were the two things that we saw about John the Baptist saying uh, about Jesus that John the Baptist had prophesied, that he would clear or remove obstacles from his threshing floor and that he will bring the wheat into his barn. And um, I don't really know if we're going to have time to talk about barns, but I hope you know I'm kidding. We're not talking about barns. In 2 Samuel 24... Well, again, why did I say this? Why did I say that the threshing floor is the same as the temple? Because it actually is. In first second, er, sorry, in first in second Samuel 24, David takes a census of God's people which he had been told not to do. And um, he is basically if we combine that with the study from Gideon, he's trusting in his own strength and in the size of Israel. And David, now that he's king, has, has, uh, he's begun to look at his kingdom and count it and say to himself, what do I have? And he's, he's beginning to trust in the number of people who can probably pay tribute and the size of his armies and rather than trusting in Yahweh. So David is sinning. And because of that, God brings judgment against Israel. But at the time that he brings judgment against Israel, he spares Jerusalem in this time. He's, he tells David by the word of, of Gad, not the word of God. Gad is a guy who sends a message to David. Gad comes and tells David to buy the threshing floor of Aruna. And that threshing floor 
uh, is going to be used as a place to set up an altar for an offering of guilt. That is a, 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 an event where David recognizes before God in a significant and meaningful and intentional way his sin in taking a census of the people and trusting on man's strength instead of God's strength. And so that threshing floor, just David owns it and it just stays in the family line. And um, there's some amazing things that happen to that threshing floor. In Second Chronicles 3, 1 through 2, it says, Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to his father David at the place that David had prepared on the threshing floor of Ornan. Ornan is the same name as Aruna. It's, um, we don't have time to go into it, but you can just trust me on that. He began to build on the second day in the second month of the fourth year of his reign. Solomon built the temple on the threshing floor, which means that biblically the threshing floor is the temple. So when Jesus is going to utterly clear the threshing floor, he's going to utterly clear the temple. They're the same place. Another dream that Joseph has is about the heavens. That is, the, the sun and the moon and the stars are going to come and bow down to him. And that really sounds weird because the sun and the moon and the stars are huge. And um, you something that's larger than, than what you're bowing down to, you can't do it. It just doesn't work. And so what does this mean? Well, the meaning of the dream is easy. And in fact, Joseph's father doesn't even wait for an interpretation. He knows what it is right away because that's a biblical symbol. The sun, the moon, and the stars are symbolic of rulers and authorities that God has set up in culture, in, in government, in, in life, in religion, whatever, whatever you want to talk about, whatever area of society you want to look at. The sun and the moon and the stars biblically point to rulers and authorities. And so in this dream, it's, it's very clear what happens it says, the sun and the moon and the 11 stars were bowing down to me, the 11 stars being the tribes of Israel, um, because Joseph and his brothers later became the tribes of Israel. His father said, are, are I, my, your mother and your brothers actually going to come down to bow before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Um, I want to just convince you biblically that sun, moon, and the stars are rulers. In Genesis 1, 16, 18, this is the beginning of, the, this is the first time the sun, the moon, and the stars are mentioned in the scriptures. And so God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He made the stars also. God placed them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth and to govern the day and the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. So God creates the sun, the moon, and the stars, and he, what's their function? Their function is to govern or to rule. And then God comes and judges or evaluates whatever he has just done. It says in verse 18b, and God saw that it was good. He came, Yahweh came and observed what his hands had done and then pronounced a judgment or made an evaluation of what has happened and he called it good. So Joseph's brothers were jealous of him, and they knew exactly right away what he meant by the dream. 
And likewise, when Jesus delivers the parable of the landowner, the Pharisees need absolutely no interpretation. In Matthew 21, 35 through 39, we pick up, or sorry, 30, 33 through 44, we pick up with the parable of the landowner. Jesus is in the midst of a, a series of significant confrontations with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And this goes on for five or six chapters at the end of Matthew. And it, we already saw in 12 and 11 how it had already started, and three was you know, the beginning of the fight, so to speak. So Jesus, in Matthew 21, 33, he says, Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower. And he rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. When the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive the produce. The vine growers took his slaves and beat one and killed another and stoned a third. Again, he sent another group of slaves larger than the first, and they did the same thing to them. But afterward, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. They took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? They said to him, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to another vine grower who will pay him the proceeds at the proper seasons. Jesus said to them, did you never read in the, in the scriptures, the stone which the builders have rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and will be given to a people producing the fruit of it. And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. And he who falls on this stone will be broken is talking about those who place their trust on Christ, those who throw themselves at the mercy that is found at the cross and rely and trust and put their life on to Christ rather than Christ coming and that stone, in Jesus' words, falling on them and crushing them like dust. If you remember from the first message in this series, the part zero message, we talked about Joel 2, and, and we don't have time to go through all of that today, but Peter said that this that the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in Acts 2 was the beginning of the fulfillment of the prophecy that Joel had made concerning the outpouring of the Spirit, that the sons and daughters would prophesy that their old men would dream dreams and, and see visions. And so in Joel 2.31, we see this really confusing verse right after talking about prophecy. It says, the sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Peter's declaration here is saying that the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is what is kicking off the fulfillment of Joel 2. But only the first half of Joel 2 was fulfilled. And some of us have probably heard that Joel 2 is talking about the end of days. And I would humbly submit that based on the biblical language and system set up that describe the pictures that Joel is using, that this is talking about nothing other than the judgment of Israel in AD 70 by the hand of the Romans. And the reason why I'm saying that is that 
this is a beautiful and terrible thing. And by beautiful and terrible, I mean it's marvelous. In Jesus' words, it's, it's a marvelous thing. And so this is what we're trying to see from the scriptures. David said, open my eyes that I would behold wonderful or marvelous things. The way that God has unfolded the passing off of the kingdom from Judaism over to the people of God, the true people of God, uh, rather than false Israel, true Israel, the church, that's a marvelous and beautiful thing. And when we st- stop and take time to see the story unfold, we are uh, not only caught up in the story, but we're also uh, brought to a point of worship where we just see and claim and and ascribe to God glory because only a God that is powerful and mighty could do anything of the sort to weave human history in such a way that he would not only prophesy about it, but that he would set up a threshing floor. And when that threshing floor was used to build an altar at that time, he had spared Jerusalem. But the next time when Jesus comes to clear his threshing floor, he doesn't. In Matthew 23, 34 through 39, Jesus says, therefore, behold, he's explaining the parable of the landowner. He says, therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, so that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. And then Jesus, with compassion, weeps over Jerusalem and says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I have wanted to gather your children together, the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is left to you desolate. When Jesus said that, he was saying, I'm going to thoroughly clear this threshing floor. He's not only going to remove the temple, but he's also going to remove God's presence from the temple before he does it. In verse 39, he says, For I say to you, from now on you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we do ask you for those of your tribe that are still in uh in Israel, that is, those who are Jewish, who you have called and, and foreknown and predestined from the, before the foundations of the world, we ask you, God, that you would put glory on the Gentiles and in the church, that they would see that God has, has moved on from them. And Lord, we ask you that you would create in us a biblical worldview that would be able to see the prophecies of the Old Testament and the New Testament and not be confused about some rapture thing, but rather that they have extreme meaning and that they have been and are being fulfilled by your new covenant community, the church that was established at the day of Pentecost. God, we ask you that we would see Jesus as mighty and righteous and holy judge, that we would embrace the fear of the Lord and that you would give us eyes to behold wonderful and beautiful things from your word, that we would not sin against you. In Jesus' name, amen.